Good morning and welcome. I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on. And I've got two passages for you this morning. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 5. That's the first one we're going to look at. Luke chapter 5 and then Matthew chapter 4. Luke 5, Matthew 4. Now, if you don't have a Bible with you, uh, please, there are Bibles in the pews. Grab one of those and turn to uh, Matthew 4 and Luke 5. Um, and, and let me say this, if you don't have a Bible at home and, and you would like to have one, uh, please, at the end of service, take that Bible from the back of the pew and take it home with you. We want everybody to have a Bible at home that they can read and reference and study, so uh, please, let that be our gift to you this morning. Now, as you're turning to Luke chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 4, let me tell you a, a riveting story. It was 2005. Uh, my wife and I had been married uh, about six or seven months, and we uh, decided to go with uh, my family, one of my brothers and his wife, um, and my mom and dad, we decided we would go on a snowboarding and ski trip up into New Mexico. So we're from Texas. Uh, we drove from the Texas Panhandle to New Mexico, uh, and it was snowing the day that we left. And so we decided we would all caravan there, so we, we followed everyone, and we were coming through a pretty nasty snowstorm. This, the roads were slick, it was, it was pretty dangerous conditions, um, and, and we're driving along, and, and just about as we're coming out of this snowstorm, we notice off to the side a set of skid tracks and a car leaning against a telephone pole. And as we come up on this accident, we realized that that had just happened and a woman was crawling out of the car. So we all pulled over and started running over to the car. There was a mom with a two-year-old baby in the back seat. And she's trying to get the back door open, but the telephone pole, the car had flipped up. The top roof par portion of the car had hit the telephone pole, crushed it in, and it had fallen back down. And so the back door was crumpled and crushed and could not be opened. And she's very upset, of course. Every mother would be upset. Her two-year-old is in the back seat, trapped, and she couldn't get to him. And so me and my brother run over to the car, and we climb through uh, all sorts of areas. He went in through the passenger side, and I went in through the driver's side. And we were able to crawl through and get to the back seat. And he was pinned in his car seat by the roof. He wasn't injured, but he was pinned and he was scared because he's a two-year-old. He just experienced a car accident and he can't move now. Well, my brother and I kind of wrangled it around and wiggled the car seat and we were able to slide the car seat out from under the, the, the crushed roof and we were able to pull him out. And we, we took him over and we put him in the warm car, our warm cars. And uh, luckily we had packed a big cooler full of food and, and, and apple juice and, and drinks and stuff. And so uh, we let them take a drink and relax while the police and the fire department arrived. Uh, now, crazy wild story. But, but I want to ask you a question this morning based off of that. Any one of us in that situation would have jumped to that person's aid, Right? I mean, if you drove up on a situation where a mother was crying for her two-year-old to be saved, to be rescued from a car accident, I don't think any one of us in this room would hesitate to do what we could do to help that two-year-old, right? Because that two-year-old is helpless and was in desperate need of someone to help him in a way that he could not help himself. But let me ask you this. 
why do we not have the same urgency with those of us, those that we know who are spiritually dying, who are in spiritual need of rescue? Why is it that we're not willing to put our lives, our reputations, sometimes our relationships on the line when we know that there are eternal consequences to whether or not we are God's instruments of rescue. That's what we're going to talk about today. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 5 with me. So as you're turning there, let me do a little recap. We've covered the early life of Jesus up to this point. And we're, we're in a series where we're, we're going through all four of the biographies of Jesus. They're known as the Gospels. First four books of what's called the New Testament in your Bible. And up to this point, we've covered who Jesus uh, is. Uh, there have been a lot of revelations. First off, it's been revealed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, the one who's going to save mankind from their sins. Uh, that's revealed to uh, Mary and Joseph in the, the message that the angel gives to them. We understand that he was fully human and fully God at the same time. It wasn't a 50-50 split. It was a 100% across the board, both God and human. We understand that he is Lord over all. We've covered that. Uh, we've talked about how he is called the lion and the lamb. That he is the great king. That we're supposed to live our lives under him. But he is also the sacrificial lamb that gave up everything for us. We've also covered that he, through his ministry, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And everything he did was, was through the acting of God the Father and the Holy Spirit in his life. Last week we covered his, the temptations that he went through when, when Satan tempted him. The week before we talked about John's testimony about him and his baptism. And today we're going to talk about him calling the first disciples. So look with me. In Luke chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. So Luke chapter 5, 1 through 11. It says this. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, it, this is the uh, Sea of Galilee. It's just another name for Sea of Galilee. The people were crowded around him and listening to the word of God. So imagine this. Jesus is teaching. He's on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd is gathering to listen to him. Verse 2. He saw the water's at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So, so think about this for a second. Jesus is on the shore. The crowd is pressing in on him. And Jesus realizes that if his message is going to be heard, he needs to get a little further out so that the, all the people can see and hear him. So he's gotten in this boat, and the boat has just kind of gone off from shore just a little bit. Verse 4. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered him, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But... Because of what you say, I will let down the nets. And when he had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. 
And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. Did you catch that? Jesus' knees. The boat is so full of fish that Peter is falling down on his knees. And at the point that he's falling down, there's so many fish underneath him that he's not at Jesus' feet. He's at Jesus' knees. He says, And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, and they left everything and followed him. Amazing account of Jesus in his early ministry days doing something very miraculous uh, with these men. And I want you to notice a couple of things. Uh, he's teaching, he, he's out in Peter's boat, and he gets finished, and he says, Hey, Peter, why don't you uh, go out a little further and go throw your nets out? Now, it says in the beginning of chapter 5 that they were cleaning the nets. That means that they were done for the day, and they were arranging and cleaning the nets and prepping everything for the next day, the next evening's night of fishing. And so Peter's like, man, Jesus, we just cleaned everything up, and now you want us to throw it out and get it all dirty again? Don't you understand? We've been out all night fishing, and we caught nothing. Peter's not going, oh... Okay, Jesus. No, he's, he's kind of got an issue here. Jesus, seriously? I'm tired, man. I don't want to throw the nets out again. We've been at this all night long. When I was uh, probably six or seven years old, my family used to go fishing in Oklahoma every uh, summer. Uh, and it was this big thing, the, the family tradition, all of our family would get together and do this. This particular year... Uh, my grandfather and my dad decided that they were going to try um, jug fishing. You ever, you know what jug fishing is? It's basically you take a milk jug and you put a line on it and you put a big piece of bait on it and you set it out uh, late in the day and then you leave it there. And you mark your jug so you know which jug is yours. And then late in the middle of the night you go back out and you go retrieve the jugs and see which jug has a fish on the line. And so we went back out, and we went to jug after jug after jug. Listen, it's the middle of the night. I'm exhausted. The only thing I could think was, man, I want this to be done. I want to go back to the tent and go to sleep. And then we turned this cove where we had dropped like three jugs, turned the cove, and my grandfather looks out, and he goes, Fred, my dad's name was Fred, Fred, look over there. And we, dad looks over and he looks down the line and there's three jugs moving down the water line. And so my dad punched the throttle on the boat and caught up to the jugs. And my granddad, I tried to find the picture but my mom couldn't mail it to me in time. My granddad caught three catfish that me standing next to them, they were as tall as I was at seven years old. They were huge. It took my dad and my grandfather together to pull them in because they were so big and heavy. But guys, if they had listened to me, they would have never gone and gotten those three jugs. Because I was sick of being out there. I'd been out there all night. I was tired of it. I wanted to go home. That was Peter's attitude. 
Jesus, I want to go home. I've been at this all night. You don't understand. You're not a fisherman. You can't just tell me to go throw the nets back out and expect me to catch something. You're a carpenter. What do you know about fishing? That's what Peter's thinking in this moment. But look at his second statement in what he says. He says, Jesus, we didn't catch anything. And then he says, in the end of verse 5, he says, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. And what ends up happening? They catch so many fish that the nets start to break. They catch so many fish that it almost sinks two boats. Sometimes Jesus is going to ask us to do what we don't want to do. We're going to be tired. We're going to be exhausted. Sometimes we're going to be unwilling. But sometimes at those moments, Jesus says, I know you're tired and I know you're exhausted. I know you're not willing. But trust me on this. Just go and do it. Just, just, just trust me. But Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, Jesus does know what he's talking about. He does know. Now, take this same passage. Look with me in Matthew chapter 4. As you're turning to Matthew chapter 4, I want to pose my big idea. I want to give you a statement. And guys, this is, this is one of the big ideas that I truly want you to think about this week. I, I always say that. You know, I, I always want you to think about. But we're about to do something big as a church. And I want you to think about this statement and how it applies to each and every one of our lives. The statement is this. Followers of Jesus lead others to follow Jesus. Followers of Jesus lead others to follow Jesus. Look with me in Matthew 4. And we're going to pick up in verse 18. It says this. Matthew 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake... For they were fishermen. Now Matthew skips the rest of what Luke, the story that Luke tells. And goes straight to what Jesus tells them at the end of the account. Look what it says in verse 19. Come follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. We are called to follow Jesus. The word Christian in the New Testament is only used like three times. Usually when there's a reference to to the Jesus group in the New Testament, it's referred to as the followers of Jesus. Now why is that? Why does Jesus himself say to follow him? Back in Jesus' day and time, there was a tradition of religious teachers... Around age five, a young boy would go and study the the Torah, the the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, And if that child, as they grew up, if that child uh, was particularly good at studying and understanding the, the Torah, then they might have an opportunity to go on and be a religious teacher if they wanted to do that. And so if they decided that they wanted to be a religious teacher, what they had to do was they had to go to a rabbi and ask that rabbi for permission to study under them. And the, the 
text, the Jewish texts that talk about this process, says that they would then become disciples of that rabbi. Disciple meaning student. They would become students. And they would sit at the feet of the rabbis and listen and learn and follow. We're called, as Jesus followers, to be his students, his disciples. What does Matthew 28 say? You go to the very last command, the great commandment that, that, that we talk about in Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 through 20. And it talks about Jesus giving a command to go and do what? Go and make disciples. You see, followers of Jesus will lead others to follow Jesus. It's not a suggestion. It's the greatest of commands from our Savior. You see, he saved us, and then we have the opportunity to lead others to his rescue, to the rescue that only he can provide. And he says in Matthew 4, I will make you fishers of men. We're not talking about catching fish to eat. We're talking about catching fish to rescue. We're talking about catching people for their benefit, for their good, for their salvation, for their rescue. So Jesus is sending us out to be the instrument of rescue to those who are spiritually dying. We're called to go and make disciples, leading every generation to the life-changing hope of Jesus. This passage is so valuable to us as followers of Jesus. Later on in the book of Matthew, in chapter 9, verses 37 and 38... It says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but there's not enough people willing to go and work the harvest to bring those that, that harvest in. We're called, please hear me on this, we're called to be those laborers, to be those workers in God's harvest. As followers of Jesus, we're called to lead others to be followers of Jesus. So, next week, we're going to begin a campaign called Who's Your One? We did a little bit of it last year leading up to Easter. But this time we're going to do it for several months. And you're going to see a big emphasis. Next week you're going to see some, some things out in the foyer uh, that, that are going to be promotional things that we'll be doing. I'll talk about that next week when we get there. Uh, we're going we're gonna to be a, a, put a big emphasis on this. Um, this emphasis, called Who's Your One, is the Southern Baptist Convention's big push right now. Uh, they've been doing it for about two years and they're encouraging every church uh, to encourage their people, the people of their body, each body, to go and ask, God, who's the one that you would have me go and be the instrument of rescue with? Who's that one person in your life that God is calling you to talk to Jesus or invite them to church? Uh, and so let me do this. Uh, the, the guy who is spearheading this more than anybody is our Southern Baptist Convention president. His name's J.D. Greer. And he's got a video that actually explains the, this emphasis and why we're doing it. So I want to go ahead and show that video now.
We pastors dream about big numbers, and we should. But a daily focus on one meaningful interaction for Christ, that's the true difference maker. One friend, one family member, one coworker, one person at a time. We wanna see God move in our nation like we have never seen before, but it all starts with one. In our church, we've learned that there's nothing that we can do that is quite as effective at reaching people as simply equipping our members to carry the gospel to people outside of the church. It's not programs that reach people. It's not mailers that reach people. It's not sermons that reach people. It's people that reach people. And it is individual people um, having a relationship with one person that they're using that relational bridge to, to share the gospel with them and live the gospel out in front of them. That is the heart of the Great Commission. It's multiplying disciples, making multiplying disciples. So my one is uh, a guy that is one of my uh, high school daughter's teachers. And we just really hit it off. He's not from the United States. Uh, he's new to Christianity, but he's got a ton of questions. And in the last six months or so, he's accepted two of my invitations to come and I come to one of our church services. I invited him recently to, to begin reading the Gospel of John with me, which he, uh, he said I sat down to read the Gospel of John, just a chapter or two. He said by the time I got up from my chair, I read the entire thing and he showed me he had these just pages and pages of, of notes and questions that he said I can't wait to discuss. He's agreed to start coming to church regularly now, so I'm praying that the day will soon come when I will see him express faith in Christ. I've got my one, and now I'm challenging you and your church to join us and to find yours. Because ultimately, the only number that really matters is one. Who's your one? The idea is that we know as pastors and church leaders that it is intimidating to tell someone about Jesus. I get it. I'm intimidated by it. It scares me to have spiritual conversations a lot of times. But ultimately, if I value my relationship with my Savior, if I value eternity, then I need to figure out a way to get through the fear and intimidation in my life and figure out how to have spiritual conversations or invite someone to church. And so this push is to say, you don't, we're not asking you to have a conversation with every person you come in contact with. We're asking you to choose one person. We're asking you to sit down this week and pray about, God, who's the one person who does not know Jesus in my life that you want me to start intentionally building relationship and looking for opportunities to share Jesus or invite them to church? Uh, and so this is the push. Luke 19.10 says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. We're called to seek and save the lost through Jesus. They're lost. Those who don't know Jesus, the, the comparison is that they're lost. A lost person many times doesn't know that they're lost. And sometimes they need a guide to come alongside them and help them understand the route, the path that they need to give, need to go in order to find their way. And that's what we're asking. In other words, Jesus came to rescue. He came to save the lost. He came to rescue. And we want to do this. We want to help you be the method of God's rescue in the lives of others. We want to equip you. We want to help you and resource you to be able to do this. So, what, our, what are our next steps? What are the next steps that we need to take as followers of Jesus in, in taking this 
this pathway uh, to Hoosier One. Well, uh, the, the Hoosier One campaign actually just gives us five, and I think they're great uh, uh, steps for us to take. The first one is identify. We first need to identify. We need to ask God to reveal who that one should be. Who that one person. And guys, let me just say this. For some of you, you're like, one, psh, okay, five, three, I don't know. But it's about being intentional and listing some names out that you're going to be intentional with. And so ask God to reveal who your one ought to be. The second thing is to intercede. Intercede is a big church word that means pray. And so we're going to ask you to pray not just about them, to, but, but to really pray for them. Uh, this is not to just say, God, help me to have a conversation with them. It's a prayer to ask God to bless them and soften their minds and their hearts to, to his gospel and to the love and the hope uh, that Jesus offers. Uh, the third thing is to invest. Create connection points for relationship building with your one. In other words, it's that idea that you're looking for opportunities to talk to the person with the idea that you're going to build a relationship so that you can more easily invite them to church or talk to them about Jesus. The, th- the fourth, uh, third, no, fourth, intentionality. Look for opportunities to have spiritual conversations with your one. As you have those connection points, as you invest, you're going to suddenly have an opportunity to be intentional with what you say and what you do with that person, with that, with that one. And so with that intentionality, you're going to be asking the Holy Spirit, God, Holy Spirit, guide me. When you open the door for me to speak some truth or to invite uh, them to church or, or to, to share the gospel, Lord, help me to recognize and take those opportunities. Be intentional. And lastly, invite. Make an effort to share the gospel with your one. And again, share the gospel can mean talking to them about Jesus and what Jesus has done in your life. Or it can be simply saying, man, would you come to church with me? I'll come pick you up or you can meet me there. You can sit with me. I'll walk you through the whole process. And maybe we'll go grab dinner and lunch afterwards. It's being available to have that conversation. Maybe it is saying, hey, man, I think you need to hear something about somebody who changed my life. And open the door to having that conversation about Jesus with them. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do today and this week. I want you to walk with us through the first step. That very first step, identify. Over the next seven days, I would just ask one thing of you. Over the next seven days, I want you to spend time in prayer to the Lord asking Him who your one needs to be. Maybe it's a neighbor or a family member or a co-worker or, or whoever. Mine is my neighbor. I'll tell you right now, it's actually a couple that live right next to me. And I've been praying for them for, for quite a while. They moved in about six months ago. And I've been looking for opportunities to invest and build relationship with them. Uh, and we're getting there. Uh, and we're, we're getting to know them as a couple. And now I'm looking for those opportunities to invite them to uh, the Easter uh, passion play or, or our Easter Sunday services or, or come to Sunday morning or whatever. 
But it's the idea that we look for those opportunities. So again, I'm just asking you to do one thing this week. Next seven days, pray for who your one is supposed to be. Now let me talk to you a little bit about how to have a conversation, a spiritual conversation with someone. We're going to go ahead and take this step uh, of training you a little bit on what we call in the church world called evangelism, about telling someone about Jesus. Uh, and the way we're going to do it is through a program called Three Circles. But let me first say this. We're going to talk about the intentionality aspect, the being intentional. We're going to talk about that right now. But let me give you a first a couple things before I teach you this Three Circles method. First, understand that spiritual conversations happen most effectively in the context of a relationship. Imagine for a moment... If you were not a churchgoer and your Muslim neighbor invited you to come to the mosque, some of you go, well, I would never. That is the exact same attitude that most of your friends and neighbors have about church. If you read about studies that are done amongst the unchurched, uh, those who don't go to church or used to go and got hurt and don't go anymore, they do not like us. The, the top things, the top words that are used to describe Christians and the church amongst the unchurched is that we're hypocritical, we're judgmental, we're too political, we're anti-homosexual. Does that sound like something that's a good thing? No. The people around you who do not know Jesus probably don't have a good view of the church. So imagine for a moment if someone asked you to go to a service at a mosque or a Hindu temple, you would probably say no unless there was a good relationship there. I've said this many times. Statistically, eight out of ten unchurched people would go to a church service if they were invited by a friend. You're that person. You're that friend. And so who is it that you need to intentionally invest in a relationship with, with the idea that that relationship may be their salvation, their rescue for Jesus? So, put, the, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. If you were, for example, my neighbors... If I was to put myself in their shoes and say, what are they afraid of? What's keeping them from going to church? What's keeping them from hearing about Jesus? It helps me to have better conversations with them and understand them and know them better. Answer their questions. What are they afraid of? What are they intimidated by? What's their view of Christians and the church? How would you feel and what would you be thinking if you were in their shoes? So put yourself in their shoes when you have conversations with them. Don't, don't approach this as a salesman, in other words. Get to know them and approach this as a friend who's concerned for someone else. Now here's the, uh, the, the three circles method. This is one of the methods that our, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention is promoting right now. And I think it's one of the better ones that's out there right now. Uh, it's a, another method where you can draw or show them something. We've got these booklets. They have an app uh, that you can download, but uh, I'll show you all that here in a moment. 
But they've got a video that goes through the training uh, that helps you understand how to do this. And I want to show that video so that you can see how to use this booklet or the app when the time comes. Jimmy Scroggins again, working on our Gospel Conversations training. And I want to give you an example that you can maybe follow as you try to get ready to get reps to share the Gospel of Jesus. So I'm going to show you the three circles, just the Gospel piece right now on the board. The Bible tells us that God has a design for our lives, that God cares about every aspect of our lives. That's our families, that's our personal lives, that's our choices, our money, our sex life. Really everything about our life, God has a design for it. If we live according to God's design, then we have the opportunity to live in the arena of God's blessing. The problem is that all of us have a tendency to depart from God's design. When we depart from God's design, the Bible has a word for that, and the word is sin. And inevitably, when we sin against God, when we leave His design, we end up in a place that we call brokenness. Now, all of us know what brokenness feels like. It feels like emptiness. It feels like guilt. It feels like rejection, it feels like shame, it feels like regret. But when we get in this place of brokenness, we always try to fix it. So we try to maybe dive into a different relationship or try to make more money or try to become more religious. But whatever we do, we try to mitigate the pain of our brokenness, we try to escape our brokenness in some way. Now brokenness really hurts and it feels like a terrible thing, but the truth is it's a good thing because brokenness draws our attention to the need for change in our lives. But the change that we need doesn't come from in here. The change we need comes from somewhere else. The good news is that the Bible tells us where that kind of change comes from. That kind of change comes from what's called the good news or the story of the gospel. Gospel is just a Bible word that means good news. The gospel is the story of Jesus. Jesus, who is the son of God, who came to earth and he never departed from God's design in any way, not even one time. But Jesus was crucified on the cross for, the Bible says, the sins of the world. That's my sins and your sins. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God did a miracle. He took the sins of the world, our sins, and put them on Jesus. And Jesus received the punishment from God for our sins. When he'd done everything that he came to do, he said it is finished and he died. They took his body off the cross, they buried him, and three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. The Bible says that God raised him from the dead to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he could do what he came to do, forgive our sins and heal the broken places in our lives. The kind of change we need doesn't come from in here. The kind of change we need comes from the gospel itself. The Bible says that what we need to do when we find ourselves in brokenness is repent of our sins. In other words, change our heart, change our mind, change our direction, and believe the gospel story. That's the story of Jesus, how he was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead. The Bible says if we'll repent and believe, then Jesus will come into our lives. He'll forgive our sins and begin to heal the broken places in our lives. And then the Bible says that God will give us the opportunity to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. The cool thing about this is that we get to recover and pursue God's design from wherever we are. We don't have to turn back the past. We get to go and believe God and walk with God from right here. 
Now this is just the gospel piece. There's other things that you need to learn and other things that you need to rep. But I hope that this will help you as you learn to share the gospel of Jesus, turning everyday conversations into gospel conversations. So I know that you've probably, if you've been in church any amount of time, you've seen tracks, you've seen uh, these types of tools that help you have conversations. Use whatever works for you. We just want to resource you with something that you can use today uh, to be able to have those kinds of conversations. So here's what we've got. We have these booklets. Uh, It goes through uh, the three circles, explains it step by step and gives you the words to say. Uh, What I would encourage you to do is not walk through the book, but actually learn this book. It's not complicated. It's pretty simple. But that way you have and you're equipped to be able to have a spiritual conversation and clearly explain the gospel to someone who doesn't know Jesus. The reason I'm encouraging you to do this, there's something like an 80% higher response rate when you present the gospel by drawing something out. In other words, you can talk to someone... But when you draw and give them a visual illustration, there is an 80% increase in their likelihood to respond uh, and engage with you in that conversation. And so we've got these books. They're out in the foyer on the tables out there. Grab one. We've got enough for every person to take one of these. And what I'd encourage you to do is take it home, look through it, read it, understand the steps and what it looks like to do this. There's also an app. You can go into uh, your uh, device's uh, uh, app store uh, and you can look for three circles. Uh, It's called Life Conversation. Uh, You'll find the the little logo right here, those three circles right there. You'll find that there. Um, And it will go in. You can actually pull it up and just hit the screen and it walks through it step by step by step by step. So you could walk through it on your smartphone or your device uh, with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Here's the thing, when my brother and I went in to rescue that two-year-old boy, there was one thing on our mind, and that was urgency, because we didn't know what was going to happen. The car was smoking, the telephone had been broken, and so we didn't know what would happen if we didn't get in there and get that young boy out. There was a dramatic, emergent urgency in what we were doing in that moment now when the firefighters showed up they scolded us because they said and guys hear me on this they're right but let me let me tell you what my attitude was toward it they said guys look you see all the ice that's stuck to that telephone pole they said if that car was in contact with that ice at just the right place and that ice was in contact with the electrical wire at just the right place The moment you grabbed or touched the car, you would have been electrocuted with the amount of voltage that's in that electric line, and you both would have been killed. And my brother and I looked at each other, and we said, we didn't care. In that moment, we would have risked everything for the life of that two-year-old. Your friends who don't know Jesus are going to die eternally if you and I don't begin to make a difference. We are called to be the rescue line in the lives of the people around us who don't know him. Please pray about this this week. Ask the Lord what he is calling you to do and ask him for urgency.
ask him to give you that compassion, that urgency in your heart that my brother and I had for that two-year-old. That this is not something we take casually. We have to do something. We cannot sit by and let our friends and family and co-workers not hear about Jesus. So who is your one? Who is that one person that God is wanting you to be the instrument of rescue to his salvation? Join me in prayer. Almighty God, thank you. God, we thank you that those of us who know you as our Lord and Savior, we thank you that you saved us, that you rescued us from the consequences of our sin. And Lord, we pray that you would give us urgency to see those who don't know Jesus come to know him. Lord, help us to put away the fears, to put away the intimidation that we feel about talking about Jesus. Help us to put those things away so that we can fully live as disciples making disciples. That we could be followers of Jesus, leading others to be followers of Jesus. Lord, help us to not keep our faith a secret, but to go and share it with those who need you just like we need you. We thank you, Lord. Help us this week to know who our one is. In Jesus' name, amen.